You can turn to Hebrews 11. Continuing our sermon series from there today. And uh, we have seen in this chapter that we have examples of those who have faith. The author is exhorting the Hebrews who are under pressure to return to the Jewish rituals that God had appointed for them up until the time of Christ to return to those rituals rather than to continue on with faith in Christ. It didn't mean that before they did not have faith in Christ who was to come, but it was in a different manner where they performed ceremonies and things that that foreshadowed him that were types and ceremonies looking to God and what he had promised to do and bringing his son that would redeem the world. And after he came, everything was changed in the worship so that they no longer performed those ceremonies and sacrifices, but rather proclaim the good news. Our New Testament worship is largely about proclaiming the good news and praising and thanking God for what he has done and serving him as his people Uh, in a much more simpler fashion. We're not all about all these rituals and things like that as they were then because we're not depicting something. We're We're not doing a pattern of something like that, but rather we're coming because of what God has done ultimately and finally and rejoicing in that. So the author is exhorting them then to continue with this simplicity of Christ and not to not to revert back, which would really be in many ways to act as if Christ had not come at all. Uh, he's using examples of their forefathers who trusted in God when they had all kinds of opposition, sometimes even from their own people, and who continued to serve God in that opposition. The examples we have seen so far include Abel, who obtained righteousness by faith. We see what faith does. Enoch, who is a testimony of pleasing God by faith and of glorification. He was a testimony in the ancient world that there was a life after death. They knew that, of course, but he was a strong testimony in that he walked with God and then was taken without ever dying. Noah, by faith, responded to God's warning. It's an example of that, that that's what people who believe do. They don't hear a warning from God and go, oh, it doesn't matter. But he, he believed and he built the ark that God had appointed fled to the refuge that God had given him. Abraham, by faith, forsook his beautiful homeland to go and look for a city whose builder and maker is God. And it was not in this world. He looked for a city that he never had an inheritance in this world. He was living for the promise of a greater city and in hope of that. And his wife, Sarah, by faith, received strength to bring forth a child when she was too old. And Abraham apparently was too old as well. And God rejuvenated them and made them um, youthful again by, by faith as they trusted in him. And it appears that uh, Sarah even had her beauty that she had when she was young again, so that uh, she was desirable to the um, men that were around like uh, Abraham had, had trouble with before. When every, everything was, uh, she, it was, it was a marvelous thing that God did in enabling them to have children in the old age. We saw a couple of more examples that are in our scripture reading that I'm going to do now. I'm going to read back a little bit like we did last week. I'll begin in Hebrews 11:13, and we'll see two other examples. And then a third example, which is the one we're looking at today in 11:21, 21, 
is uh, of Jacob. So listen as I read this text to you. Again, I'll start in Hebrews eleven thirteen. This is the word of God. So may our God be pleased to add his blessing as we hear the word. Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. This wasn't the place where those promises were to be received, not in this life. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and infallible word. God has a wonderful way of refining his people's faith. He works in much more interesting ways than just zapping us from what we are to what we need to be, just waving a magic wand and we're boom. We're just transformed. In a way, the new birth is almost like that. But in a way, it's not. When God, even the new birth, he calls someone, and many times there's a wrestling and a struggling and a going back and forth and the, during the, as they are effectually called and they go through, uh, they're convicted of their sins and then they go back and forth and then they're convicted to see, they, they see Christ and his sufficiency and then eventually their struggle with, Are they going to do this? Are they going to follow him or not? And and then they come and they they believe and they rest in him. There's there's often a a conflict going on like that. But then after that, they're still not just zapped into perfection just like that. They're changed in their whole orientation direction now. They're committed to God to go on with him and to look to him and trust in him. But they have to go through many battles. And there are times of wavering and times of struggle Times when they seem to go backward and then they go forward again. And all the while, God is faithfully at work. So he does transform us within, but he uses all sorts of trials and encouragements and influences, both good and bad, so that we must constantly be vigilant. We must be engaged in strivings. We must be engaged in wrestling and fighting, seeking God in renewal when we have gone wrong, in prayer, in getting help, and so on. It's, it, as I've said to you, it's a dynamic life. It's not one where you just kind of just so, soak up righteousness or something. You, we're, we're engaged with God. That's the way He has chosen to work. People sometimes ask why He didn't just make us all the way we're supposed to be to start with. And just, why, didn't, why, did, why all of this? Well, you, you know, why not just... Put us where we're going to be in heaven to start with without ever having to go through all this stuff. The best answer is because he's God 
and he did not choose to do it that way. And we could maybe suggest that uh, perhaps one of the reasons for that is because he's not about efficiency. We live in a world where everything's about efficiency. How can I get from this to this in the quickest way? God's not like that. He's a God that does things in a much more interesting way. Like I say, that engages us. And along the way, there's relationship, there's growth. And things are, are much better that way because that's how God has chosen to make himself known to us. And you say, well, that's not very efficient. Well, he's not about just efficiency. He's about working in his people in, 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 in a way that is very, is, is very beautiful and very, um, it, it's, it's interesting. You know, a movie would be very boring if you went to see a movie and, you know, they just had the beginning and there was a problem and it was just somebody waved a wand and it was fixed and everything was good. Now it's in. You know, you're done. You, know, you go through a whole thing. That, that's how God works. And uh, we should be glad for that. The Bible sometimes speaks of our whole growth and bearing fruit and all these things as something that we do uh, of a refining process. Like the refiner's fire. We sang about that like silver. It has dross in it. It's not just, you don't just dig pure silver out. You have to melt it and burn it and heat it up. And then the, the uh, silver is heavier, so it sinks to the bottom and the dross goes to the top and then you scrape it off. Then you have to heat it again because it's still got impurities in it. Sometimes they talk about doing it even seven times. And Jacob's life is something like that and our lives are something like that where again and again God has to refine us and purify us and he does it in all sorts of interesting and wonderful ways. So we'll look at Jacob, who is an outstanding example of that refining process. That's a thing that stands out about him as we see him now at the end of his life and how God has worked in this man and how he has changed him. So we have um, much in this example that we can relate to. So let's get started looking at his example. Look at Jacob's amazing faith in order to strengthen your faith. The amazing faith he had as that refining process was at its end as he was about to die. By faith, this man recognizes now, as he never recognized before, that he has been marvelously blessed by God. This is demonstrated by this incident when, as he was dying, he blessed Joseph's sons. Now, at first we might ask, why is this the thing that is chosen in all of Jacob's life by the writer of the Hebrews to point to his faith? I mean, what about the time when he wrestled with God? And, you know, he had the conflict. He said, I will not let go unless you bless me. And then God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. It, it was then that, you know, God declared him to be a prince with God. But the author of Hebrews, led by the Holy Spirit, did not choose that to illustrate Jacob's faith. He chose his blessing of Joseph's two sons when he was an old dying man. Let me show you what remarkable faith is exhibited by this action of Jacob. First, let's look at Jacob's situation. He is old very feeble, having to deal, as you do if you get like that, with all of the infirmities and, thing, and indignities that go with old age, where 
you can't do things. You have to depend on other people, and it's frustrating, and you, sometimes you can't even get up to use the bathroom. There, you know, there's all kinds, you can't bathe yourself, and maybe you, you, know, you dribble your food down on your chin, and all, you know, all sorts of different things in, the, in old age that are difficulties and, and frustrations. You can't just go and, and get a glass of water or something. And you have to look to other people. So that's his situation. Second, he is now in Egypt. And having been forced to move there, lest his family starve. And having to be dependent on Egypt for food for his family. And of course, it was wonderful the way God raised up his son Joseph. It was only because of his connection with Joseph that he was able to go and live in Egypt like this. But still... It's not exactly like he's in this high position with a big inheritance of land. He had been greatly affected by that famine. And uh, he didn't, he, that, that's the third thing. He has very little in this world to give to his 12 sons. He has the burial plot that Abraham purchased, but he has no lands other than that to give them. And fourth, though things are better now, his family has never been unified. What with his four wives and their sons with their rivalry and a list of uh, big wrongs that they had done to each other that was in the history. From the, inc- and the, the wrongs that they had committed otherwise, the, the incest of his firstborn son Reuben with one of Jacob's concubines. And uh, the cruelty of his second and thirdborn Simeon and Levi when they killed a whole village just in their in vengeance and the incest of Judah, who is one of his with one of his sons, Judah's son's wives, the cruelty that had been shown to Joseph when they sold him as a slave into Egypt, and um, there was just all kinds of of difficulties that Jacob had in his past, and no doubt he had many regrets for the way that he had lived taking advantage of his older brother, then deceiving his father to get the blessing, then taking multiple wives, then taking advantage of his father-in-law so as to wreck his relationship with him, then living in bitterness for decades after Joseph was gone and being a a difficult person to to live with, with his sons where they couldn't even get him to, to do go to Egypt to, um, to deal with the starvation because he was afraid of, of losing his son Benjamin when Benjamin had to go, if you know the story. And uh, it was not, there, there was a lot in his life that was not, not all that great. And he's here to bless his son, Joseph's sons. All this to say, he doesn't look like a man that has much to give them. He doesn't look like a man that has much of a blessing at all. Not if you look at it in terms of what he had in this world at this time. By blessing Joseph's sons, Jacob shows that he considers himself to be blessed beyond measure. And he is blessed beyond measure. Think about it. What could he give these boys? Here we have two Egyptian princes. Okay? They are wealthy They are privileged beyond almost anyone else in the world. Their father is second only to Pharaoh. And at a time when the whole surrounding society, the whole surrounding world 
is beholden to Egypt. They're having to come to them for food. They've, they've, they're selling their lands and, and their own bodies as slaves because of the, the famine. They, they had done that now at this time. What does Jacob have to give to these boys as a blessing? Like Esau, though without, with much more warrant, they might say, what, what will you give us? You know, remember, this is later on when, when Esau had all of his worldly prosperity. He's, he said to Jacob, like, I don't, I don't need anything from you. I'm good. You know, he was very upset before because he thought he wouldn't have that worldly prosperity. But after he had the worldly prosperity, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm okay now. These guys are like, you know, what are you going to give us, uh, grand, granddad? What was the likelihood that these two young men, whose mother was a high-born Egyptian, so she's the one that's with them every day and bringing them up and everything, would ever be interested in an inheritance of Canaan. I mean, what, what are they going to do with it? Yet Jacob acts as though he has a blessing for them that would, would cause all of their descendants, their posterity after them in, in a few generations, to all get up from Egypt and, and go to Canaan. You know, what for? To be buried like he's going to be buried there? What, what are they going to go there for? They've got everything. They, they might smile condescendingly at each other at this you know, dotty old man, you know, that thinks he's given him something really important, special, like, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, thanks, John. Yeah, we really appreciate that, John. You know, good. It's only by faith that Jacob knows that he does indeed have a blessing that far transcends anything that these little princes have. It is only by faith that he knows that when the time comes... He sees into the future by prophecy that they will gladly take their place with their uncle's descendants to go in to the land of Canaan. Understand that the custom in those days was to give a double portion of the inheritance to the eldest son along with the responsibility to lead the family. In God's providence, Joseph, who is the oldest of um, Jacob's wife, Rachel, who is not the oldest son of all, but through, I won't go into all the details, but there were many things that had disqualified the others. Joseph had been given that position in the providence of God. So Jacob gladly gives him the two portions here by adopting his two oldest sons and making them of the 12 tribes of Israel, along with his other sons. The only way that he knew that this was because, the only way that he knew that this was the case, that these sons were to be the uh, heirs was because God had told Abraham that that would happen and Jacob had believed the oracle. Okay, that's the only way he knew that, that they would come out from Egypt. All of, his, all of Jacob's descendants would come out of Egypt and go to the promised land. In Genesis 15, 13, long before God said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. That's talking about Egypt. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Canaan was a great blessing because it was the place where God would gather his visible church, okay, his kingdom in the world, 
and make himself known to them and through them to the world, and where he would so work in them that they would continue as his people, as he would chasten them and correct them and do whatever needed to be done, send prophets to them continually to preach to them and to remind them and to call them back. And then he would bring forth the Messiah through them who would be the Savior of them and of the whole world. It is a great blessing to have a place in the visible church, in this world, upon the earth, to be numbered with God's people during our earthly pilgrimage. Because if we're among God's people in faith, it means that we will be with him in the glorious inheritance, the city city that, uh, that Abraham sought, whose builder and maker is God that is eternal. By far greater than what God was going to do in Canaan, Jacob knew that the blessing he had for his sons and for the nations was the blessing of reconciliation, peace with the eternal God. God Almighty said that he would bless them and through through Jacob's seed would bless the nations. And Jacob knew, as Abraham knew, as we looked at Abraham before, that when God blesses, it means that you're blessed forever that you're brought to glory, you're brought to communion with God forever and ever. It's not a halfway kind of a blessing. You'll be with God with eternal life in glory. The treasures of Egypt that these boys knew were but a blip compared to what God had promised to his people, the things that he had prepared for them in glory. And even though these little princes looked so rich and powerful in comparison to the rest of the inhabitants of the earth and even compared to Jacob at this time, they were paltry compared to what God had prepared for those who love him. They had nothing compared to that if they didn't have that. No, they did have that. And now I have a question for you. Like Jacob, are you confident that through faith in Jesus Christ, you have a blessing that far surpasses anything that the world has to offer. Are you confident of that? That even if if you were to gain the whole world, what you would have would be far inferior to what the least saint who has the kingdom of glory has as his inheritance. Do you know that? Do you know that that is so? But I won't stop with that. Because God has appointed me as a minister of His Word to search you out. Do you also act like a person who has such a glorious inheritance? Or are you full of complaining and whining? I have to admit, as I was last week, I always seem to get tried related to whatever I'm preaching about. And this week was no exception. How much complaining I did. How much repenting I had to do as I was wrestling with these words to to proclaim what God has done for us. And how little do I see the glory of that. Do you act like an abused child of God? That God is an abusive father? Like he has mistreated you? Are you bitter about whatever has happened to you in the past? Are you unhappy 
with your present circumstances? Are you bleak about the future? You are a child of God. There is no place for such an attitude. And parents, what about you? This is talking about an inheritance for our children. Do you see yourself as a parent who has an inheritance that is better than anything that any of the people around you in the world have? Do you see that? Or are you a little bit ashamed of what you have compared to them and what the world has? Do you tell your children and do you show them how priceless their inheritance is? Or do you act as if worldly success is the most important thing? And Oh yeah, we've got that too. I'm glad we've got that too. But what you really need to focus on and where you really need to devote yourself and your attention is on the treasures of this world. Is that, what, what do you communicate to them? Do you act like you have an, a glorious inheritance? If you do communicate worldliness to them, don't be surprised if they embrace what you've taught them and leave that silly inheritance in Canaan for the riches of Egypt. What does this old man have for these Egyptian princes? Is their wealth, their popularity, their health, their success, their achievement, their earthly happiness and comfort more important? Your children's wealth and happiness and success and earthly comfort. Is that more important to you than that their name is written down in glory? Do you make them disciples of the world? Or disciples of Christ? Do you prioritize that they have a Christian education? Or does it not matter to you who disciples them? You know, we become like those that disciple us. Does it matter to you who does that? Those of God's people who know how richly they are blessed in Christ have certain things that stand out to distinguish them from the world. They are filled with gratitude. They have a grateful spirit and they marvel at how much God has given to them. Is that the way it is with you? They're not so concerned with what happens in this world, either in the short term or the long term. They don't fret over economic meltdowns or the rise of oppressive regimes because their inheritance is secure in glory. They can be in a garbage can and still have their inheritance in glory as secure as ever. They bear their afflictions with patience, giving thanks for the unfathomable mercies that God has shown them. Even that they should be called God's sons. Do you do that? They also act toward others as one who has something that others desperately need. They pity the worldly people who only have an inheritance in this life. Even if that inheritance is very glamorous. And very pristine. What do they have without Christ? Even when their own place in this world is far inferior, they act toward them as someone who is more blessed. Like Jacob did to these little Egyptian princes who had more than he had in this world. A lot more than he had at this time in this world. And even when he went to visit Pharaoh. We read in the account in Genesis, it's remarkable that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. But like, what do you have to give me, Pharaoh might say, in his pride. He didn't, but he might have said that. 
Jacob knew that he had something that was far greater. He acted as if he, Jacob, was the one who had the greater blessing to bestow. Why did he act like that? Because he did have a greater blessing to bestow. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Or is it something that you hold in honor and that you present to other people? Is you, you need this. You don't have anything without this. Is that how you speak to others? Do you come to them gently with compassion to, to show them what they need, what there is in Christ? Do you act that way or do you act as someone who is embarrassed about your inheritance? Embarrassed about the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Let's be honest about our evaluation of ourselves. What was the conclusion? We're weak. We're weak in our faith. We very often don't act like those who have the best blessing of all, do we? Do you? You know, what's it, what's it like? Let, let me tell you something. Here's the encouragement for you. Jacob did not always act like that either. Jacob rarely acted like that until he got to the end of his life and we see him with this remarkable faith on his deathbed. Let's turn now to consider how God refined Jacob's faith that you might have hope that God will refine your faith. First, consider what Jacob was like before we see him here on his deathbed. It was only 17 years prior to this when he was 130 years old. He lived a really long time, 147 years. 17 years prior to this that he said, all these things are against me. Everything is against me. That's the way that he responded to the famine when his sons had told him that they must return to Egypt and that the prince of Egypt had told them that they must bring Benjamin, who was the son that he was cleaving to as almost in an idolatrous way, the only son of his favorite wife, Rachel, who was, as far as he knew, still alive. Joseph was alive, but he didn't know that. His family was starving, and there was nothing he could do. He regarded himself as a man who had little blessing from God. Though he still held to the promised blessing, he always had a, like, he knew that God promised to bless him, and he, he always had a seed of faith. His eyes of faith were very, very weak and dim. Now, in the passage we're looking at, his eyes, his physical eyes are weak and dim. But 17 years before, his spiritual eyes were weak and dim. In his early years, it was clear that he wanted to have God's blessing that he had been, had been promised to his family. But something else was equally clear. It was equally clear that he did not really understand the blessing. He was very right to want God's blessing, to seek God's blessing, but he had two great errors in his understanding. First, he thought it was a blessing that you had to compete with other people to obtain, that you had to use trickery and all kinds of devices to try to get the blessing so that other people couldn't get it. And second, he thought the blessing was much more about this world than the world to come. He didn't understand that having the responsibility as the head of the home that was going to be passed down to him by prophecy, that that meant that he was going to, have obligate, that he was going to be a servant to bring blessing to everyone and responsible to do that. He saw it as something I have to grasp hold of. 
that I'll, I'll lose out on material blessings and prosperity. He seemed to look at it that way, and so did his brother Esau even more. These two errors fed off of each other. When you're looking for your blessing from this world, it sets you in competition with other people. You look with envy, you compare yourselves, how are they doing, how am I doing, all this kind of, you have to compete with them and outfox them instead of being there to bless them and to bring the blessing that can be shared a million times and never be diminished with them. When you understand the blessing that God gives to his people properly, you have a blessing that can be shared. A blessing that actually gets better for you and multiplies when you share it, the more you share it. These two errors, though, made Jacob a very difficult person to live with, especially since they were joined with an intense craving to have God's blessing, his best blessing. I reminded you how he made enemies of most people in his life. He rightly cherished the blessing. He rightly cherished being blessed by God in the birthright that God had promised to him, though he was younger. But he wrongly took advantage of his brother to obtain it and lied to his father. This so infuriated his brother Esau that he wanted to kill Jacob, causing Jacob to flee for his life, spending long, miserable years serving his uncle Laban. He wanted a wife from God. But his idolatrous obsession with Rachel caused him to let Laban require him to take the eldest daughter first, lest he wouldn't be able to get Rachel. This led to so much striving and unhappiness in his home with competitions between Rachel and Leah, the unloved wife. God made Rachel barren for many years because of Rachel, because of Leah's um, rejection. And then she she gave Jacob her maidservant to have children by her. And Leah did the same to be sure that she could keep up. What envy there was then among the sons that were born to these various women. With, among Jacob's son, when, when Rachel finally had a son, Joseph was singled out. Okay, the son of Rachel was singled out above all of his brothers that exasperated the envy even more so that there was all kinds of strife and conflict upon, between his sons, envy between them. They were all competing with each other. This led to such strife that Jacob's other sons took Joseph and sold him as a slave into Egypt and presented bloody garments to his bloody garments to, the, to Jacob so that Jacob thought he was dead. Finally, Rachel had a second son. But what did God do? He took Rachel when that son was being born. Time would fail me to speak of how Jacob manipulated to transfer wealth of his father-in-law to himself, creating a bitter relationship with his father-in-law so that he would have attacked him. His father-in-law would have attacked him if God had not restrained him. So that Jacob's son Joseph, to whom he showed favoritism, was taken from him for years and Rachel was taken. And then there was the famine and the requirement to send Benjamin to Egypt to buy grain, which caused Jacob to say, All these things are against me. That was his assessment of things. How different Jacob is. Now compare that. All these things are against me. Compare that when we see him on his deathbed 17 years later. 
blessing Joseph's sons. We read about this. When he blessed Joseph's sons, he looked back and he said, Genesis 48, 15 to 16, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Who is the angel he speaks of? That is Christ. It is an angel who is put next to God, who blesses as God blesses because he is God. He is equal with the Father, bringing the blessing to Jacob. He is the author of redemption from all evil. That's what Jacob says the angel of the covenant did for him. He redeemed me from all evil. He knows Christ. What a good statement that is. Jacob now knew that all this time, the Lord had been working in him. The angel of God's presence worked in him to redeem him through all the situations of life, to refine him, to deliver him from evil. There is too little time to go into the details, but how God had worked in Jacob, how he had changed him. At Bethel, when Jacob was a young man, having been forced to flee from Esau, God had met him and promised to bless him and to bring him back to the land of Canaan. And Jacob made a vow that if God did, God would be his God and he would give him a tenth of all and worship him. God was showing Jacob that he needed to look to him in order to keep him. Jacob kept looking to himself for a long time. There were many other lessons, but one outstanding event was at Penuel when he returned home and was terrified of his brother Esau. We see how he has changed. He is distressed and the angel of the Lord, Christ, comes to wrestle with him. A mysterious wrestling match in which Jacob is, is injured and in which he refuses to let go until the Lord blesses him. And the Lord does bless him. Jacob is, I mentioned before, his name is changed from Jacob to Israel as a prince of God. Jacob has finally come to see that it is not from his own striving, but from God that blessing comes. And he refuses to go on without God's blessing. Yet God does not do as he might wish, as, he has or, as we've already been described. As we've already described, he, God doesn't do things in some, like, all. okay, after Penuel, then everything's just wonderful and great, no problems anymore. No, not at all. Because Jacob still needed to be weaned from this world, from idolatry. He was still looking for a blessing too much from this world. So the angel of the Lord kept working to redeem Jacob from all evil. And now here he is blessing these little princes with a blessing that is not of this world. Christ, the angel of the Lord, has refined Jacob's faith so that now he is an outstanding example of a man of faith. But this example's greatness is not just in how strong Jacob's faith is. We don't just look at Jacob and say, oh, isn't that wonderful? But we look at him and we say, this is what God does. This is what God does in his people. And we can trust Him to do this in us and in all of His people. Christian, take heart. 
God is at work in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. He is at work in you as the angel of the Lord to redeem you from all evil. That's what He does. He will refine your faith. He will refine the faith of all who come to Him to be saved. He will not fail to those who turn to Him for blessing. Jacob had done that for years. He was confused about just what it was. He was muddled up about just what the blessing was and how to obtain. But he looked to God and said, I must have God's blessing. Salvation is God's and he knows what needs to be done to us even when we don't know it all. And if we ask him to save us, he will. It may not be some straightforward efficiency path, but it will be the best path. The whole point of our faith is that we look to Christ to do the saving. We don't decide how to do the saving. We look to Him to do it, to redeem us from all evil. That is what Jacob finally learned, and that is what our Lord is teaching us now as He refines our faith. Christian, wait upon the Lord. You must go through much tribulation, our Lord Jesus said, to enter the kingdom of God. He knows. He's the angel who redeems us from all evil. And He said, you have to go through a lot of trouble to get from where you are to where you will be. You need patience that like Jacob, through, though you, you trust the flesh at first, you continue to come back to the Lord. And when you do, more and more, you'll be able to see that He is the one who must do the blessing. You're able to say like Jacob did, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Do not think that you are a lost cause. God is glorified in saving desperate sinners. He's glorified even more in saving desperate sinners than ones who are not so desperate. Cast yourself upon Him and He will not give up until His work is complete. Proverbs 4.18 assures you with these words, But the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter until the perfect day. See what God did for Jacob. See what God does in his people. See how Jacob is stirred up to worship God. See that in order that you likewise might be stirred up to worship God. Even as you see what God is like and what he did for Jacob, that should stir up worship in you. It stirred up worship in Jacob as an old man as he meditated on these things. What a beautiful picture we have of this dying Old man, so feeble now, worshiping the Lord. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. He is too feeble to get out of bed. But having now recounted God's mercy to him and how the angel of the covenant had been with him, the blessing that God had given to him and to his heirs, he must now show homage to his maker. He must bow in worship, even though it is physically very difficult for him to do so. He wants to bow before the living God with his body. And he postures himself and he can't even bend over without. So, so he leans on his staff and, and bows before the Lord. This old feeble man, because of his devotion to God and the faithfulness of God and how he has seen that God has brought a blessing that is like nothing that anyone could have from this world. That staff 
that carried him, that he carried all those days. Their staffs were sort of part of them as they went about. They would sometimes make carvings on the staff of different events in their life. You know, there, there was Bethel, there was Penuel, different things that happened to them as they went along the way. And here he is recounting all these things that God has done, leaning on that staff, bowing before the Lord his God. And here is Jacob recounting the faithfulness that God had shown that filled him with thanksgiving. He must bow down. He must worship. Here is true worship. A body bowed down and a heart overflowing with gratitude to God for what he had done and praise to him as the sovereign Lord who had been with him all of his days and who had brought him redemption from all evil. He is weaker in his body than ever, and his worship is stronger than ever. He loves God, and he loves God's Son. He understands the height and depth and breadth of the love of God in Christ. See that you worship God too. You may not know the depth of God's glory as you will in the future. You may not know it to the extent that Jacob knew it on his deathbed. You may not ever know it to the extent that Jacob knew it on his deathbed in this life. But remember that Jacob was not always like that at all. Who made him like that? God made him like that. How did he make him like that? Through many afflictions and trials and difficulties. Are you unable to worship God as He deserves? Of course you are. But He's in the business of making you able to worship Him as He deserves. That's our hope, isn't it? Who does the saving? Do you? Or does God? Who restores us from alienated from God to reconciled to God? From not delighting in God to delighting in God? From delighting too much in the inheritance of this world to delighting in the inheritance we have? Who does that? It's God's work to those who present themselves to him and say, Lord, you do it. I am yours. You take me. You take me and make me all that you have. You redeem me from all evil. I can't do it. You do it. Yes, you have good reason to be stirred up to worship the God who does that, to praise his name as you see in Jacob, him doing that as you see him working in you. He is worthy of all praise and adoration and glory. He is a God to learn of, and to learn from. He is a God to be prayed to and trusted in. This is all part of our worship. Leaning upon your staff. He is a God to revere and pay homage to. He is a God to lean upon for salvation, bringing you out of the wilderness. That beautiful picture of the beloved leaning on the beloved, coming up out of the wilderness. Who is this leaning on her beloved, the bride of Christ, coming out of the wilderness? Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. This is our God. How helpful Jacob's example to see that you really are richly blessed in Christ. To see that God will purify your faith and to stir your heart to worship Him. Please stand and and let's give thanks to our God. O Lord our God, here we are before You, O Lord. Coming before You as those, Lord, who are looking to You for the blessing that You have for Your people. Oh Lord, what a God You are! 
a God who is able to take sinners and rebels and to redeem them from all evil by the blood of the covenant, by your son, by the angel of the covenant, the one who, who, whom you sent into the world, your only begotten son who came here that he might redeem us. We praise you that he is with us all of our days and that as we go on through our life, that we will be able to look back at the end and say that you have fed us all the days of our life and that you have redeemed us from all evil. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us a stronger and stronger faith. Perhaps we have feeble faith now, but that is enough. If we are trusting in you with that feeble faith, then we will be blessed and you will bring us from where we are to where we need to be in glory. We thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have that, it is, that salvation is of God, that it is your work, it is not our work. And we pray, O oh Lord, that if there are any here that do not have that salvation, that you would initiate it in them today, that you would call them from the darkness and translate them into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of your Son, the kingdom of righteousness, the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is exalted at your right hand to reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. And even death will be put under his feet. Jacob, in all of his weakness, is no longer weak. And the day will come when that body that was buried there in Canaan will be raised up out of that grave. And he will be able to serve you with both body and spirit forever and ever in glory. And we thank you, Lord, that that is the destination of every single one of your people. We have an inheritance that is incomparable with anything in this world. Father, help us to live like that. Help us to know that. Help us to be a people who are, are certain of that and act like that's true. Father, away with this acting like we're abused children of God. We are not abused. You are working in us to do what needs to be done that we might be all that you've called us to be. We praise you and we magnify your glorious name. For you will reign forever and ever, and your people will reign with you forever and ever. We praise you and we thank you for the hope that we have and the certainty. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Let's come to the Lord's table. We have the blessing of God and not the blessing of Egypt. Receive now the blessing of God, people of God. May the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.